0: you want to minister to Jewish people, you have to go where Jewish people live and work and play. Well, an organization known as Life in Messiah is doing just that, and they're active in a surprising number of places. Chicago, Brooklyn, New York, Argentina, and of course, Israel. We're going to learn their strategy and hear their stories coming up. Plus, we'll take a trip to the ancient city of Laodicea and allow plenty of time for your questions along the way. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, it's great to be back together again in Israel.
1: You know, John, it's been way too long since you and I together have been here in Israel, and I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, with that said, let's dig into a fresh perspective on current events we've been seeing throughout the region here in the Middle East. Story one being a bill that would bar Benjamin Netanyahu from serving as prime minister has actually been proposed by Israel's justice minister. Is this an attempt to prevent Netanyahu from returning to power?
1: Yeah, Justice Minister Gideon Sa'ar denies the bill is personally linked to Netanyahu, but it's widely perceived to be an attempt to keep him from becoming prime minister again. Uh, The proposed change to Israel's law would block any Knesset member indicted for a crime that includes a maximum sentence of three years and moral turpitude from being tasked by the president with forming a government. And it would also bar that person from being included in a vote of confidence in a new government or from becoming alternate prime minister. Now, if approved, the proposed law would take effect after the next elections when a new Knesset is sworn in. And here's the problem. The only person right now who would be impacted by this law and thus prohibited from becoming prime minister would be Benjamin Netanyahu. So it's hard not to see this as being specifically designed to keep him from ever returning to power. The justice minister who introduced the law is a former member of Netanyahu's Likud party who had a major falling out with Netanyahu. So the real question now is whether the bill could pass into law. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett evidently allowed Sa'ar to introduce the legislation, though he has not publicly come out in support of it. But the bill has caused tensions within Bennett's own party, with Interior Minister Ayelet Shaked coming out publicly in opposition to the bill. And this is where the inner workings of Israel's political system come into play. If Sa'ar pushed to advance this bill right now, those in the coalition who are opposed to it could threaten to vote against the budget, mm-hmm. bringing down the government. As a result, Sa'ar is expected not to push the legislation forward until after the budget has passed. Then the question is whether the government could muster 61 MKs to vote in favor of the bill. It looks like they would lose support from within the coalition itself. However, the six-member Arab joint list, which isn't part of the coalition government, has said it'll support the bill. Now, it's unclear why they would do so, except as a way to bring down a leader whom they've opposed in the past. One thing that does seem to be clear is the reality that the bill is trying to eliminate the one person viewed as a threat by some within the current coalition.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Well, last week we talked about the saber rattling going on as Israel suggests it is getting ready to confront Iran. But on a practical level, how close is Israel to actually pursuing that military option?
1: Right now, Israel's current government is looking at several different options for dealing with Iran. Uh, One would be for the U.S. and the West to enter into another, hopefully better, nuclear agreement with Iran. Uh, Right now, this doesn't seem to be too likely, but some of the saber-rattling is designed to push Iran back to the negotiating table. If that doesn't work, then the only remaining option would seem to be a military strike, either by the West with Israel or, more likely, by Israel acting alone. And on a practical level, this military option won't be easy. Unlike Israel's previous attacks against Iraq's and Syria's nuclear reactors, uh, an attack against Iran has far more challenges. The distance is greater, and Iran has spread its nuclear facilities out across the country. Some of the targets are located in hardened underground facilities. Uh, This would require Israel to fly and refuel its fighters for multiple trips. It's doubtful any other Arab country would risk Iran's wrath by allowing Israeli aircraft to use their bases. Iran also has far more complicated anti-aircraft systems that would need to be eliminated. Israel would be stretched to the limit in terms of aircraft, refueling craft, and bombs capable of penetrating the underground facilities. Now add to all of that one additional wrinkle, Iran would be almost certain to retaliate following the very first strike. So while trying to knock out a list of facilities, Israel would also likely face drone and missile attacks from Iran and from Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen. Now, all this suggests Israel will wait as long as possible before choosing any military option. But having said that, Israel's threat to resort to a military option is not mere rhetoric. Iran is pushing to obtain nuclear weapons, and they're likely to use them against Israel if they're given the chance. Israel will not allow that to happen, even if it requires them to risk a prolonged military conflict with fighting on multiple fronts.
0: Stories you've been seeing online and on television from the Middle East, that's our focus today on the land and the book, and some stories you haven't heard about. I'm John Geiger, with me Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, a Middle East authority, and we're working our way through this list of current events. Story number three, the Dead Sea continues to shrink as it has been for some time. What, if anything, can Israel do to save it, Charlie?
1: Yeah, John, we're not going to see the Dead Sea on our trip, but the uh, group I have just following will. And what happens, I I think, is every trip I take, it looks like the Dead Sea is shrinking just a little bit more. To give our listeners an audience of how much it's declined, back in the 1930s, uh, the Dead Sea was measured and it covered an area of 410 square miles. Today, the waters cover an area of just 234 square miles. Hmm. That's a drop of 40% in just 80 years. The major problem is that the water from the Jordan River, which used to flow into the Dead Sea to help keep it filled, is now being pumped out by Israel, Jordan, and Syria for agriculture. And a multi-decade drought in the region has contributed to the decline. So today, just a trickle of water makes it all the way down to the Dead Sea. Israel is deeply concerned, though their options are somewhat limited. They had hoped to join with Jordan and the Palestinians in what was called the Red Sea-Dead Sea Project, which would have installed a desalination plant in the Red Sea by Aqaba and then piped the slurry from the plant up to the Dead Sea. However, the logistical and the political and economic challenges became too great and that project was abandoned before ever getting started. So what can be done? Well, Part of the solution now that they're looking at revolves around Israel's continued construction of desalination plants in the Mediterranean. A seventh plant, though several years away, is planned for Western Galilee. Uh, The hope is that water from the plant could be used for agriculture in the north, eliminating the need to pump water from the Jordan River, while excess water from the plant could also be pumped into the Sea of Galilee, allowing more water to flow down the Jordan River. With growing cooperation between Israel and Jordan, it might also be possible for Jordan to purchase water from Israel's desalination plants to keep farmers in the Jordan Valley from using so much water from the river. The first goal is to provide enough water down the Jordan to keep the Dead Sea from shrinking any further. Then hopefully, as more water from these desalination plants comes online, they'll be able to increase the flow and gradually refill the Dead Sea. It took 80 years, though, for the Dead Sea to drop to its current level. Mm -hmm. So I really don't expect to see it fully restored anytime soon.
0: What did you say the time frame was for some of these desalination plants to come online again?
1: The next desalination plant, the seventh of the ones that they're putting up, will be several years away. So we're talking uh, at least two or three years or more before they can start implementing this plan.
0: Well, scholars believe an ancient text from Qumran might solve the mystery, of why the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at that particular site. How plausible is the theory?
1: Yeah, this caught my attention because it's, it's academia at its best or worst, depending on how you look at it. Now, <laughs> personally, I have some serious doubts, uh, but first I gotta explain the story. It starts with a discovery back in the 19th century of hundreds of thousands of ancient manuscripts and fragments that were discovered in the storage area of a synagogue in Cairo. Uh, One document, it's about a thousand years old, was known as the Damascus document and many have associated it with the Essenes. Uh, The scholars are proposing a new theory and it points to a passage in the document which says, and all the inhabitants of the camps shall assemble in the third month and curse anyone who deviates either to the right or to the left from the Torah. Okay, that's the passage. Uh, The third month corresponds to the month in the Hebrew calendar when the Jews celebrate Shavuot, Uh, What we call the Feast of Pentecost. Now, these scholars are suggesting the meeting mentioned in that document must have been held at Qumran, since the site's unusual structure makes it the best candidate for the Essenes to gather and celebrate the feast. Uh, They suggest that things like the pantry at Qumran, which was filled with large numbers of bowls and the large open air terrace at the site, match up with this command to gather. But, John, here's my problem the theory requires too many assumptions we have to assume the document is connected specifically, perhaps only to the Essene community and to Qumran, even though it was written a thousand years after that community had disappeared and was found in Cairo. Then we have to assume the gathering place refers to Qumran, even though the place isn't mentioned specifically by name. In fact, the gathering place God commanded Israel to gather was at the temple. So uh, if the document says you're not to deviate to the right or left, it's hard to see that that would refer to Qumran. You're listening to The Land and the Book. We're up next. It's a conversation
0: about life in Messiah. Stick around. If you want to minister to Jewish people, you have to go where Jewish people live and work and play. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, and if you're new to the program, this is our second segment out of four. It's our chance to spend some time up close with a ministry that's making a big difference, a big impact. And before we plow ahead, though, with our conversation, let's get creative for just a moment, you and I, with strategies that we can use right now in impacting the lives of Jewish people right where we live. Listen to this. Objections to Jesus, everybody's got them, including Jewish people. How do we handle those objections? Justin
2: Crone is with Chosen People Ministries. I think it's helpful for us to understand that when sharing our faith with Jewish people, that we should keep in mind that the objections that they have to the gospel may not have anything to do with the fact that they're Jewish. It might just have something to do with Their human identity and Mm -hmm. really their desire to be the boss of their own lives rather than surrendering their lives to the authority of God and his redemptive plan. Paul made it very clear in his letter to the church to Rome that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. There's no one who seeks God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think we need to just remember that sometimes when Jewish people object to the gospel, it's not because they're Jewish. It's just simply because they're they're human. Yeah. And, uh, you know, someone once said that Jewish people are like everyone else, just more so. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they have the same kind of objections that a lot of other people do. And considering such, I think it should just remind us that we need to understand what is it that actually is holding them back Mm -hmm. from wanting to consider who God is or who Jesus is, and then speak to that specific objection in their life. Great counsel
0: from Justin Crone, who serves with Chosen People Ministries. Always a pleasure to have you stop by, Justin. Thanks, John. Levi Hazen is passionate about the Lord and His Word. He, along with his wife and son, Love to spend summers in Israel, leading trips and connecting with Israelis. That means, COVID permitting, he's got a pretty active international traveling schedule. Levi graduated from Taylor University with a B.A. in Christian Education Ministry back in 2004 In 2011, he got right with the Lord, and uh, I'm teasing him, pursued a Jewish studies certificate from Moody Bible Institute. And then in 2016, he graduated from Moody Theological Seminary with his master's in biblical and theological studies. He and his wife spent a year living in Israel, studying subjects like archaeology and biblical geography. Today, he serves as executive director of Life in Messiah. Levi loves talking about his uh, son, a two-and-a-half-year-old kid, loves to run, play beach volleyball with his wife, and uh, loves watching college football. So as we welcome Levi to the
3: land and the book, I have to ask, who's your favorite college team and why? Yeah, that would be the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Uh, I grew up in northern Indiana in the shadow of the Dome. Okay, so you're a, you're a Fighting Irish guy. Yeah. Yeah. You've got an interesting job,
0: if I may, as the uh, quarterback of an organization known as Life in Messiah. This is
3: not exactly a new organization. When did the ministry begin, and under what circumstances? Yeah, it began in 1887 Hmm. in Chicago. And so our first name was the Chicago Hebrew Mission. And at that time, as you're aware, John, uh, there was a lot of persecution in Russia going on, especially against the Jewish people. You think uh, sort of like Fiddler on the Roof. Exactly like Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. And so there were waves of Jewish immigrants coming here to Chicago. And our founder, William Blackstone, said, we got to find a way to minister to these folks, not only uh, their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. And so he launched what is today Life and Messiah. Hmm. I'm told that Brooklyn, New York, has the largest Jewish population
0: outside of Israel. You guys are active there. How is life in Messiah impacting Jewish
3: people in Brooklyn? Yeah, for over a decade now, uh, God has blessed us with a field ministry training center right on the edge of a major Orthodox community in Brooklyn. And so right now, short-term teams are coming to our short-term center, and they're receiving theological training. They're heading out onto the streets— learning how to sensitively share their faith with Jewish people.
0: I have to imagine, though, that that sometimes uh, gets uh, colorful, spirited, maybe even just a little bit of uh, conflict.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to happen anytime we're out on the streets doing evangelism, and uh, it certainly happens within the Jewish community as well.
0: So how is that mitigated? How do you handle that?
3: Well, I think, first of all, reliance on the Spirit. And so no matter what, we always want to be gracious in our responses Uh, But also, we want to primarily be asking questions. We have a a training seminar we do that's focused around putting pebbles in the shoe. And you know, John, when you have a pebble in your shoe, you can't just keep on walking. Right. You got to sit down, you got to extract the pebble, and then you can keep going. And so what we're hoping to do when we're doing street evangelism especially is put pebbles in people's shoes, just enough Mm. to get them thinking so that maybe they'll come back for another question or they'll take that piece of literature or inquire further online Mm. Levi Hazen and his wife
0: spent a year living in Israel, studying archaeology, studying biblical geography. He's a fellow Moody grad who serves as executive director of Life in Messiah. You guys also minister in a number of creative ways in Israel and other places. I first don't want to talk about uh, an interesting outreach down in Patagonia, Argentina. First of all, I'm going, what? I, you know. I had no idea there's a Jewish population in Argentina of any size. You've got this thing called Shelter on the Lake, Uh,
3: what's it all about? Yeah, that's right. So Shelter on the Lake is a hostel where backpackers can stay for free for up to five nights. And our staff that are running the Shelter on the Lake are expert climbers. And so what they offer these guests is the opportunity to be taken out by an expert climbing guide, Hmm. and they can learn to rock climb. They got all the equipment there. And the majority of folks that are staying at this hostel... Are actually Israelis now why would that be Argentina yeah because after Israelis complete their mandatory military service they're interested in going exploring the world and they go to places like India and Europe and but they also go to South America especially for those wanting adventure Mm -hmm. and Patagonia is right on that Israeli hiking path and so our staff have set up a hostel there where folks can get a Shabbat meal on a Friday night Mm. there's a gospel message being presented And we have scriptures in all kinds of different languages, but specifically Hebrew, so that our Jewish friends can receive a New Testament on their travels. What kind of response do you get? I mean, I bet there have been some interesting conversations. Awesome conversations. In fact, when you see believers living in community, like we do there at the shelter, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that provokes people unto jealousy the most, Uh is they say, I've never been in this type of community before. All these people love one another. They're working together. They're all sharing the same message. It's pretty incredible. And so it definitely, the nature, the hiking, the climbing lends itself to those conversations about God as well. And there is a significant
0: Jewish population, at least traveling through on these, on these adventures, as you call
3: it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then there's an indigenous population up in Buenos Aires, where you actually have thousands of Jewish people who are living in that city. Hmm. Moving uh, back to
0: the nation of Israel itself, you do ministry on the streets of South Tel Aviv. Uh, I had no idea what was going on in South Tel Aviv. Describe the conditions of the people
3: and what your teams are doing there with life in Messiah. Yeah, well, most people, when they think of the Holy Land, John, they're not thinking of sex trafficking, drug addiction, prostitution. But that's exactly what's happening in South Tel Aviv. Hmm. And so our staff that have been there on the ground for years have launched not only a soup kitchen where folks can come in, they can find relief from the heat, they can get food, clothing, take a shower. They can hear the gospel message, most importantly. In addition to that, we've got a women's shelter where battered women, along with their kids, can come and live, escape the harmful relationships and situations they're in. And we have a full-time men's center as well, where men can get off the streets, get free from addiction, again, hear the gospel message. After hearing the gospel message and God radically transforming their lives, we've seen several of these men and women then begin to pour back in to the ministry that we're doing there. You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, hanging out
0: with our guest, Levi Hazen, who is executive director of Life in Messiah, a creative outreach to Jewish people around the world and here at home. Let's get specific. Uh, Maybe not a name if we need to protect that name, but a real person who has a real-life
3: impact story with regard to the gospel because of what you guys have been doing. Yeah, well, we could share those for all day long, to be honest, because of what God's up to in the Jewish community, John. But let me just take one, for example, that happened really during the pandemic here. Adam was raised in a Jewish home, conservative Jewish home. Mm -hmm. When he grew up, he started to study more about Judaism and so forth and became involved with a sect called Chabad, which is a pretty large sect. Well, he had a relative that had come to faith recently. And his relative said, hey, I know a Jewish guy in Brooklyn. He's a, he's a believer in Jesus, and you should be talking with him. Hmm. Please, would you talk with him? Finally, he said, okay, if you stop talking to me about the Lord, I'll talk with this guy. I'll meet with him, and then we'll be done with it. <laughs> so that guy was our staff member living in Brooklyn, and he started to meet with Adam and develop a friendship with him, relationship evangelism. And after a few times of meeting, shared the gospel with him. Turns out, this guy actually really desired the gospel. And Mm. Adam placed his faith in the Lord. Uh, God used meetings with our staff for that to happen. And recently, September of 2020, he took a step of faith and got baptized, Mm. which, as you know, is a big deal, especially in the Jewish community. Made a public profession of faith. Discipleship is ongoing on a weekly and monthly basis, meeting over Zoom, meeting face-to-face, learning the basic tenets of the faith. Let me ask you, how is witnessing to Jewish people here in the United States uh, different from witnessing to Jewish people in Israel, or is it all pretty much the same? Yeah. In my experience, it's definitely different. In my experience, Israelis are more open to talking about the gospel and the things of the Lord rather than our American Jewish friends. Hmm. I think there are probably multiple reasons for that, but in my experience, I've received the most pushback, the most hostility right here in the United States. Part of that
0: might be because uh, here in the U.S. Uh, they have a pretty good knowledge of of who Jesus is, uh, and and you know maybe they've had a distasteful relationship or friendship or some kind of relationship with somebody who claims to be Christian and has been less
3: than thrilling. Uh, but
0: what are the other factors?
3: Yeah, I'd say another factor is that America, for the longest time, has been considered a, a quote unquote Christian nation. And so for that reason, the Jewish community has taken a very protective stance, a very defensive stance, knowing that there's a church on every corner here, there's Christians all over the place. We need to actively guard against any kind of missions influence. Hmm. That's not the case in Israel necessarily, where if you see somebody on the street, you just kind of assume that, hey, they're probably Jewish too. And so there's not this identity protection defensiveness that's going on in Israel like it is here in the U.S. I think that's one factor. Hmm. I assume there has to be opposition from some people to your work. What kinds of things has your ministry encountered? Absolutely. Um, We've encountered pretty much everything. Uh, It's not uncommon for our staff to be spit on, for our staff to be called names. Mm. Uh, Things, unfortunately, like worse than Nazis, because we're not just trying to kill the body. We're trying to, quote, steal the soul. Mm. In addition, when we've um, taken people in uh, from the religious Jewish community that have come to faith, there's been some pretty terrible things that have happened, including kidnapping. And so they put these folks through a process called deprogramming, thinking that only if someone is uh, outside of their right mind would they believe in this man, Jesus. Mm. So the opposition is intense. It's often organized. And of course, we know the root of it, though, is an enemy of the gospel. And that's, that's not the people. That's, that's the enemy, Satan himself. Somebody listening
0: says, uh, "That's nice that you guys are doing those things over there at Life in Messiah, Levi. Good for
3: you. But there's not really a role for me there, is there? How would you respond?" Yeah, I would say there's definitely a role for you. Uh, You know, especially for us Gentile believers in Jesus. Romans eleven eleven says that salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy, and I think that means we can be praying, we can be sharing the good news with any Jewish friends we have. We can be supporting Jewish ministry, all these things. And in addition to that, John, Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Somebody wants to take a next step. uh, Where would they go if they'd like to learn just a bit more? Yeah, head on over to our website. We have a lot of different ways to get involved at lifeinmessiah.org. Okay. What about your online outreach? You guys have a presence there. We do. If you can also head over to InSearchOfShalom.com, you can chat with somebody on InSearchOfShalom. You can read articles, watch video testimonials, uh, so we're on shalom.com as well as uh, podcasts and several other venues.
0: And you guys also lead tours. You personally lead tours to Israel.
3: Yeah, we do. We lead a God's work and God's land tour, as well as mission trips. All right. And again, the uh, connect point would be? LifeInMessiah.org. And of course, we're going to put a link to their website at ours,
0: TheLandAndTheBook.org. TheLandAndTheBook.org. Levi, really great to connect with you. We're excited about all that you're doing and and pray that God would greatly multiply your efforts. Thank you, John. And we'll hope to have you back. Up next here on The Land and the Book, it's another great collection of your questions from Scripture. Might be one of your questions. Who knows? But stick around for more here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio.
1: I'm John Giger with Charlie Dyer. Charlie, what are we about to do now? Uh, we're about to do one of my favorite parts, which is answer people's questions on the Bible or the Middle East. Uh, if they've got questions, that gets me excited, and I'd love to try and find the answers. All right, well, let's dig
0: into our pile of questions, like this one from uh, Daniel. He says, I try to time my Saturday errands so I can listen to you on Moody Radio Chicago. I have a friend who believes in open theism open theism, believes God doesn't know the future until it happens. He references the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. In verse 12, it's where God says to Abraham, Do not lay a hand on the boy, for now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. My friend's response to that verse is that if God already knows everything beforehand, why is it written that way? Was he lying when he said that to Abraham?
1: Yeah, well, I'll start this way. One key error of open theism is the tendency to begin with a focus on narrative passages like this one, rather than on passages that specifically describe the character of God. It's better to start with passages that clearly teach God's character and then look at the apparent difficulties. Now, God says very specifically that he does know the future because he's sovereign over it. Now, here's just a few examples. In Psalm 139, David wrote, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Uh, God knows what you're going to say even before you say it, which answers that passage in Genesis. Well, But then in verse 16 of Psalm 139, David says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know, God knows every detail of your life, including when it'll end, before you were even conceived. Isaiah 46, verse 10, God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. And then he tells why. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. You know, God's saying he's the sovereign God who can announce the future because he's in control of it. Now, with that truth in mind, let's go back to that passage in Genesis 22. I believe there God's using language Abraham would understand. It's an accommodation on God's part to his creation rather than a theological statement regarding God's lack of sovereignty. Uh, the wording was designed to help Abraham realize God does know and understand his heart attitude of faithful obedience. Uh, here's another example from Genesis 3 that I find helpful. You know, following Adam and Eve's sin, God calls out to Adam in the garden, where are you? In verse 9. Well, it hardly seems that God couldn't find Adam or didn't know where Adam was hiding. You know, God asked the question, not for his benefit, but for Adam's benefit. In essence, God was pointing out that Adam was foolishly trying to hide from him. Now, there are multiple times in narrative passages when God will speak in what we often call anthropocentric terms. That is, he speaks in terms to accommodate humans in, in ways that humans would understand. And that's what I think he's doing in Genesis 22.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, our host, Charlie Dyer, looking at questions that have been emailed to us. And you can connect with yours at Moody.edu. Tirza says, I wanted to ask about Psalm 91, verse 1. What does it mean by secret place when it says that he dwells in the secret place of the Most High? Thank you.
1: Well, the Hebrew word translated by the King James Version there as secret place might be better translated as shelter. Uh, That's how it is in the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Bible, the New International Version. But the word comes from a root uh, that refers to something that is hidden or concealed. Uh, The imagery is out of a person who's come to God for shelter and protection. I think the second part of the verse helps us understand that first line by saying the individual is abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. Uh, the imagery there likely pictures out of a young chick seeking shelter under the protective wing of its mother. Uh, the psalmist's point is that the individual who looks for shelter and protection with God will find God extending his protection over them the way a hen does for its chicks. Hmm. That's why in the very next verse, the psalmist can then say that God in whom he trusts is my refuge and my fortress. Climate change is a historical fact that cannot be disputed
0: writes Roy. He goes on to say, but not all agree on the causes for these changes. Are they the result of natural processes and cycles or human imposition? I'm not taking a side here, but it did make me wonder about geographical changes that have taken place in the land of the book, the Bible, such as Corinth. When you stand at the ruins of modern-day Corinth, we're told that the harbor was much closer to the city than it is now, and one is left to wonder what has happened? Did the ocean recede as the result of natural causes or man made causes? I'm just curious if you're aware of any explanation for this change or if you have an opinion on it.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm not a scientist, so. When it comes to opinions, I do have one, and I'll probably offend some people in the process here. Uh, the question you know, starts with, you know, is there climate change, and are we seeing that now, and uh, is it the result of interrelated factors, or is it primarily caused by human activity over the past few hundred years? Uh, this is where I can become offensive, I think. I do believe that there is climate change. Uh, there's always been climate change. Uh, I believe other factors, uh, including everything from sunspots to fluctuations in the Earth's orbit, also account for some of the climate change. And I believe that the human aspect is indeed part of it, but I think it's being overemphasized in part for political purposes to serve as a convenient excuse for promoting social change that people would otherwise find unacceptable. So, in short, I believe there is climate fluctuation and change. I just don't believe all of it's being caused by human activity. And yet, I don't think that's an excuse for us to abuse God's creation. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the universe, including the earth. He put humans here to work it and take care of it. Uh, God intends for humans to exercise stewardship over his creation, and he expects us to develop and protect his creation. Christians ought to be at the forefront of caring for our environment because we believe it ultimately belongs to God and because we believe he expects us to be good stewards of that which he's placed under our care. You know, 50 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called Pollution and the Death of Man. It was, and I think still is, an excellent reminder that our environment has intrinsic value because it was created by God. Now, now I get off my soapbox and come back to that specific question about (laughs) Corinth. I don't believe there's been a great change in the city's harbor. Uh, Corinth actually wasn't on the the harbor. It stood on an isthmus between Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula to the south, but it wasn't on the water's edge. I think you might be uh, thinking about Ephesus, though, instead of Corinth. Ephesus was a harbor city in Paul's day. But the ruins are now about three miles from the Aegean Sea, and that was caused by the harbor silting up over time. So in that case, it was a factor other than climate change that caused the site of Ephesus to be landlocked today.
0: Sharon writes, I know that there are no contradictions in the Bible. Passages like Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, 2 Chronicles 25, 4, and Ezekiel 18, 17 teach that children were not to be put to death for their fathers but that a person was responsible for his own sins. However, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14, David's child was put to death because of David's sin with Bathsheba. And in 2 Samuel 21, the Gibeonites were allowed to kill seven of Saul's descendants because of Saul's sin. How are we to reconcile these verses?
1: Yeah, and let me add one more verse, and then we'll try and answer the whole pile. Uh, you know, In uh, Deuteronomy 5, 9, God said, I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So how do we reconcile all these passages? You know, In one sense, they say each person's judged for their own sin. Others seem to say children were punished for the sins of their ancestors. Well, in the first group of passages, God is dealing with specific acts punishable by death. And the principle that God gives in the Bible is personal accountability requires that each individual be judged or punished for his own actions. Uh, Ezekiel 18 says, the soul who sins shall surely die. So what about those apparent exceptions? Well, Deuteronomy 5, 9, the word translated punishing is literally visiting. And I think that translation actually gives a better understanding. In, In essence, God says the actions of parents do impact children sometimes for multiple generations. Now, we know that to be true in our society. An abused child becomes an abuser as an adult. A child raised in a dysfunctional home carries emotional scars that create problems for them and eventually for their children. Now, I see something slightly different in that 2 Samuel 12 passage where God judged David by having the child die. The passage is written in a way that doesn't suggest God was punishing the child for David's sin, but as king, David's actions had consequences that extended beyond himself. And uh, I see something, by the way, similar in 2 Samuel 24, where David foolishly ordered a census to be taken of the fighting men. And as a result, 70,000 people died. Uh, David was the one being judged, but his sin had consequences that extended to the lives of others. And I see the same thing in uh, 2 Samuel 21 in a similar way. As As King Saul was expected to display responsibility and accountability, but The Gibeonites were actually living just three miles from Saul's hometown, and evidently, we don't know the exact time or place when it happened, but evidently, after becoming king, Saul and his family tried to annihilate the Gibeonites. And in that case, the attack by Saul brought God's displeasure on the entire nation because it violated a covenant they had made with the Gibeonites. Saul might not have been alive any longer, but seven of his descendants were chosen to be put to death, and they were symbolic of his, as the Bible calls it, blood-stained house the Old Testament did include the principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Saul and his family sought to wipe out the Gibeonites, so God permits the Gibeonites to symbolically wipe out Saul's family. And those who were put to death might actually have shared in the guilt of attacking and killing the Gibeonites.
0: Maybe listening to this segment of questions and answers has prompted you to go, man, I'd like to get my question answered. Well, it's easy to send it to us. It's a quick email to Moody.edu. We're back with Charlie Dyer's devotional next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Thanks for joining us today on The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. You know, when you think about it, materialism, the god of this age has really controlled an awful lot of our thinking. But as we're about to find out, its tentacles have been wrapping themselves around Christians for thousands of years. Before we get to Charlie Dyer's devotional, let's listen to this testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and now sees the Bible, the Christian life, and lots more completely differently. Here's another Holy Land experience.
2: Hi, my name is Linda, and one of the things that When we were traveling right from the beginning on the Sea of Galilee was the realization that you get out there on that water and you think, you look this way and you look that way and you look all around you and you see how the things that Jesus did, Charlie presented things of the different things that took place just around the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, on the sea (laughs) with Peter walking and all that type of thing. And what a wonderful thing to be able to see all of this, to be aware of where Jesus was and the things that he accomplished around that sea.
1: Well, Charlie, materialism is apparently not such a modern thing, huh? Uh, It is not, and we find that out in Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. Our seven-week journey through the churches of Revelation is almost over, and today's church is Laodicea. It's 55 miles from the city of Philadelphia. The ruins at Laodicea are not as impressive as those we've seen at Ephesus or Pergamum, but enough remains to let us know this was a magnificent city in its day. A large colonnaded street cuts its way through the center of the site. Two theaters, clearly visible though not yet excavated, sit on the northern and western ends of town, while the ruins of a stadium are visible on the southern end. Standing on the street and sighting along it to the southeast, we can see Mount Cadmus in the distance. Near the base of the mountain, about 10 miles away, are the ruins of ancient Colossae. The cool, clear waters of the Lycus River flow out of the mountain and past Colossae's ruins. The water then flows down the valley between Laodicea and the other major town in this region, Hierapolis. We can see the ruins of Hierapolis by walking to the other end of the main street and looking from the theater. From here, we can look north and see the white travertine cliffs of Hierapolis, known today as Pamukkale, just six miles away on the other side of the valley. The white cliffs you see are calcium bicarbonate deposits formed from the mineral-rich hot springs that break to the surface there. These medicinal springs were well known in the first century for their healing properties. Laodicea sat between the cold, refreshing Lycus River that flowed off the mountains past Colossae and the hot medicinal springs of Hierapolis. So near, and yet so far. Laodicea got its water by aqueduct, and it just wasn't the same but its mediocre water supply seemed to be the only negative in this otherwise prosperous city. Located on a major east-west trade route that stretched from Babylon to Ephesus, Laodicea became a wealthy city. The Laodiceans produced an eye salve recognized for its therapeutic powers. The physician Galen, who lived in Pergamum, described this salve as something that was made best only in Laodicea in Asia. The city also boasted its own medical school. And the region around the city was well-suited for raising sheep. Their black wool helped Laodicea become known as a textile center. A special type of cloth came to be called Laodicean. How wealthy did this city become? During the reign of Nero, a massive earthquake leveled Laodicea. But the people declined Rome's offer of assistance and rebuilt the city with their own resources. The church in Laodicea evidently shared in the city's prosperity. In fact, it seemed as if life couldn't be better for this church. Materially prosperous, financially self-sufficient, safe and secure with little opposition or persecution. The church at Laodicea had it all, or so they thought. Then they received their letter from Jesus and discovered he was not pleased with their spiritual condition. Jesus began by pointing out the church's insignificant impact on its own culture. He did this by relating the church's spiritual condition to the town's water supply. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Jesus is alluding to the cold spring water at Colossae and the hot therapeutic water at Heropolis. As the writer of the NIV Study Bible says, the church in Laodicea supplied neither healing for the spiritually sick nor refreshment for the spiritually weary. They were having as much spiritual impact on the city as a cup of lukewarm water. But what made this church so spiritually ineffective and powerless? Jesus cuts to the heart of the problem. They had so much material wealth that they thought they could also be spiritually self-sufficient. Putting it in our terms, they had so much that they didn't sense any need to rely on God. They claimed to follow Jesus, but they lived their lives as functional atheists. Jesus said it this way, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea had great material wealth, but it was accompanied by an equally great spiritual poverty. Alluding to the goods and services for which the city had built its reputation, Jesus drove home the need for these individuals to discover what true spiritual wealth actually looked like. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments that you might clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed, an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus encouraged them to pursue spiritual wealth, spiritual covering, and spiritual vision. The people had so much materially that they saw little need to depend on Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus still cared for them and wanted to fellowship with them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Theologians argue over whether this verse is an invitation from Jesus to believers or to unbelievers. In reality, I believe both can be true. The church in Laodicea likely had both in the congregation, and Jesus genuinely cared for both. Whether the ones listening to Jesus' words were spiritually dead or just spiritually impoverished is immaterial. Jesus' message was to all who were not in fellowship with him, either through unbelief or through a lifestyle that had crowded him out. He cared for both, and both can respond to his knock on the door of their heart. Perhaps it's fitting that Jesus' final letter was to the church in Laodicea. Because that church looks so much like the Western church today, a church that seems rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing, and yet that has such little spiritual depth, and that's making so insignificant an impact on society. But note carefully what Jesus is saying. Being wealthy or having possessions isn't the problem. The problem comes when we depend on our wealth and not on Jesus for our well-being. That's when we're in danger of becoming spiritually poor. Over a century ago, sightless Fanny Crosby saw with absolute spiritual clarity the truth to which the church in Laodicea was blind when she penned the words Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but His love abides forever, through eternal years the same. My friend, Is Jesus patiently knocking outside the door of your heart? If he is, why not open it to him today? Thank you, Charlie. It's been quite a journey through these
0: seven letters to the seven churches, and great to hear about Laodicea today. I really appreciate the way you take those things and make them very applicable to us today. Ah, Thanks, John. Well, as we close, a quick reminder of our website, thelandandthebook.org, the place to go for information about our guests. We've got online audio. You can always hear any program you hear. Again, podcasting is there. That's free. A link to Charlie's Facebook page and his blog, all there at thelandandthebook.org. You can email us with your thoughts about the program. We love to hear from you. Why don't you write us at thelandandthebook.org at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.